which is responsible for the degenerate conduct of so many of the present generation. Social improvement can only be effected by improving the wages and homes of the poor. And is the behavior of the rich any better? Is there less immorality in the West End of London than in the East? It is drunken and thriftless people who makes the slums, and not the slums which ruin the people. God's Word teaches it is out of the heart of fallen man, Mark 7.21-23, and not from his faulty environment that proceeds all which defiles human nature. Nor is it any more warrantable for any person to attempt throwing the blame for his downfall on being obliged to mingle with evil characters. Gehazi was isolated from all bad companions, placed in the most favorable circumstances, dwelling with a man of God, but his soul was depraved. While the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil, Ecclesiastes 8.11, the gospel, and not better social amenities, is their only remedy. Neither his close association with the man of God, nor the witnessing of the miracles performed by him, affected any change within Gehazi. The state of his heart is revealed by each expression recorded in verse 20 of Second Kings 5. Behold, my master hath spared Naaman, incapable of appreciating the motives which had actuated Elisha. He felt that he had foolishly missed a golden opportunity. Gehazi regarded Naaman as legitimate prey as a bird to be plucked. Contemptuously, he refers to him as the Syrian. There was no pity for the one who had been such a sufferer, and no thankfulness that God had healed him. He was determined to make capital out of the situation. I will run after him and take somewhat of him. His awful sin was deliberately premeditated. What was worse, he made use of an impious oath. As the Lord liveth, I will run after him. There was no fear of God before his eyes. Instead, he defiantly took his holy name in vain. So Gehazi followed after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? Verse 21 It is solemn to observe that God put no hindrance in the way of him who had devised evil. He could have moved Naaman to quicken his pace and so outdistance Gehazi. But he did not. An indication that He had given him up to his heart's lust. It is ever a signal mark of divine mercy when the Lord deigns to interfere with our plans and thwart our carnal designs. When we purpose doing anything wrong and a providential obstacle blocks us, it is a sign that God has not yet abandoned us to our madness. 
the graciousness of Naaman in alighting from his chariot and the question he asked gave further evidence of the change which had been wrought in him. Fourth, its aggravation. And he said, All is well. My master hath sent me, saying, Behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Verse 22 Here we see the wicked Gehazi adding sin to sin, thereby treasuring up to himself wrath against the day of wrath. Romans 2, 5 First, his greedy heart cherished a covetous desire. Then, he deliberately and eagerly, as his running shows, proceeded to realize the same. And now, he resorts to falsehoods. Liars can tell a plausible tale, especially when asking for charity. The thievish knave pretended it was not for himself, but for others in need that he was seeking relief. Ever a favorite device employed by the unscrupulous when seeking to take advantage of unwary victims. Worse still, he compromised his master by saying he had sent him. To what fearful lengths will a covetous heart carry his subjects? And Naaman said, Be content Take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and laid them upon two of his servants and they bare them before him. 2 Kings 5.23 Naaman was quite unsuspicious. He not only complied with Gehazi's requests but gave him more than he asked for. After the prophet's firm and repeated refusals to accept aught at his hands, he should have been more on his guard. There is a warning here for us to beware of crediting every beggar we encounter, even though he be a religious one. There have ever been religious leeches who consider the righteous a legitimate prey for them to fatten upon. Whilst it is a Christian duty to relieve the genuinely poor, and there are few such today, yet we are not to encourage idleness, nor suffer ourselves to be deceived by those with a smooth tongue. Investigate their case. And when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and bestowed them in the house, and he let them in go, and they departed. Verse 24. He took pains to carefully conceal his ill-gotten gains in a secret place, margin, no doubt congratulating himself on his shrewdness, reminding us of the hiding themselves of our first parents, Genesis 3.8, and of Achan, Joshua 7.21. But he went in and stood before his master, Verse 25, pretending to be a faithful and dutiful servant, he now appeared before Elisha to await his orders. The most untruthful and dishonest often 
assume a pious pose in the company of the saints. And Elisha said, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? An opportunity was thus given him to confess his sins, but instead of so doing, he added lie to lie, and he said, Thy servant went no whither. There was no repentance, but a daring brazening of it out. Fifth, it's justice. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? Verse 26. The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Verses 26 and 27 Though Christians are not endowed with the extraordinary powers of the prophets, yet if they be truly walking with God, they will discern a liar when he confronts them. 1 Corinthians 2.15 Elisha put his finger on the worst feature of the offense. Is it a time to receive money? and thus sully God's free grace. From the words that follow, Elisha indicated that he knew how Gehazi designed to use the money, intending to leave his service and set up as a farmer. His punishment was a condign one. He had coveted something of Naaman's. He should have that which would henceforth symbolically portray the polluted state of his soul. Sixth, his significance. Space obliges us to abbreviate that Gehazi fully deserved the frightful punishment which was visited upon him and that the form it took was a case of what is termed poetic justice will be evident to every spiritual mind. Nevertheless, there was a severity of dealing with him which is more noticeable than in other cases. Nor is the reason far to seek. God was incensed at his having so grievously compromised the display of his free grace. The Lord is very jealous of his types. Observe how he moved Joseph to restore the money to the sacks of his brethren when they came to obtain food from Egypt. Genesis 42.25 Because he was there foreshadowing Christ as the bread of life given to us without money and without price. The failure of Moses was far more than a losing of his temper. It was a marring of a blessed type. Note, smite the rock in Exodus 17.6, but only speak to it in Numbers 28. Christ was to be smitten, Isaiah 53.4, but once. As Moses suffered a premature death for his fault, 
so Gehazi was smitten with leprosy for his. Seventh, its lessons. We can but mention three. First, there is a sharply pointed example here of the bitter fruits borne by the nourishing of a covetous spirit, and a fearful exemplification of that word, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6.10 How we need to pray, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. Psalm 119.37 Second, there is a most solemn warning against putting a stumbling block in the way of a babe in Christ. Naaman had only recently come to know Jehovah as the God of all grace, and that was another reason why he dealt so severely with Gehazi. See Matthew 18.6 Third, there is a searching test for those of us who are engaged exclusively in God's service. Though delivered from the love of money, we may seek the good opinions and praise of men. Chapter 20 Twelfth Miracle We have entitled this series of chapters the mission and miracles of Elisha. And as we pointed out in our introductory chapter, much the larger part of what is recorded of the life of this prophet is devoted to a description of the miracles performed by him and the circumstances or occasions which gave rise to them. Excepting that which occupied our attention in the first two or three chapters, when we contemplated the preparing and enduring of him for his work, very little indeed has been said about Elisha's mission or ministry up to the point we have now reached in his history. Yet here and there brief hints have been given us of that which engaged most of his energies. Those hints center around the several brief mentions made of the sons of the prophets and the relation which Elisha sustained to them, a further reference to whom is found in the passage which is now to be before us. As we pointed out under the previous chapters on Elijah, Israel had fallen on bad times and their spirituality was at a low ebb. Idolatry was rampant and God's judgments fell frequently upon them in the form of suffering the surrounding nations to invade their land. 1 Kings 20, verses 1 and 26, 22, verse 1, 2 Kings 1, verse 1, and 5, 2. From the brief allusion made to them, it would seem that Elisha devoted much of his time and attention to the training of young preachers who were formed into schools and designated the sons of the prophets, which in the Hebrew language would emphasize the nature of their calling and contain no reference to their ancestry. 
There was one group of them at Bethel and another at Jericho. Second Kings 2, 3, and 5. And yet another at Gilgal. 4.38 It is from the last reference we learn that Elisha was wont to sojourn with them for a season and preach or lecture to them as their sitting before him signifies. Deuteronomy 33.3 Luke 2.46 and 10.39 And from the repeated mention of the people in this connection, 2 Kings 4.41 and 42 we gather that these seminaries also served as more general places of assembly for the the pious in Israel gathered together for the worship of Jehovah and to receive edification through his servant. That Elisha acted as rector or superintendent of these schools is evident from the young prophets owning him as the man of God. 2 Kings 4.40 and Master 2 Kings 6.5 First, its connection. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. 2 Kings 6.1 By means of the opening and, the Holy Spirit has linked together the miracle recorded at the end of chapter 5 and the one we are now to consider. As in previous instances, it points both comparisons and contrasts. Each miracle concerned those who were intimately connected with Elisha, in the one case his personal attendant, in the other his students. Each occurred at the same place, in the immediate vicinity of the Jordan. Each was occasioned by dissatisfaction with the position its subjects occupied, the one reprehensible, the other commendable. But there it was the unfaithful Gehazi, while here it was the devoted sons of the prophets. In the one Gehazi took matters into his own hands, in the other they differentially asked permission of their master. In the former, an act of theft was committed. In the latter, a borrowed article was recovered. In that, a curse descended upon the guilty one. In this, an article was retrieved from the place of judgment. Second, its occasion. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Verse 1 There does not appear to us to be anything in this verse which justifies the conclusion that some have drawn from it, namely, that these young men were discontented with their quarters and lusted after something more congenial. Charity always requires us to place the best construction on the projects and actions of our fellows. The motives which prompt them lie beyond our purview and therefore are outside our province. 
and actions are to be condemned only when it is unmistakably clear that they are evil in their nature or tendency. Had these students given expression to a covetous desire, surely Elisha had reproved them. Certainly he would not have encouraged their plan as the sequel shows he did. We are not told which particular school of the prophets this one was, but from its proximity to the Jordan, there can be little doubt that it was the one situated either at Jericho or Gilgal, most probably the latter, because the reference in 2 Kings 4.38 seems to indicate that it was there that Elisha made his principal headquarters. This appears to be confirmed by the language used by the students. Where we dwell with thee, they had said sojourn had he been merely on a temporary visit to them. From their statement we gather that under the superintendency of Elisha, their school had flourished, that there had been such an increase of their numbers the accommodation had become too cramped for them. Accordingly, they respectfully called the attention of their master to what seemed a real need. It is to be observed that they did not impudently take matters into their own hands and attempt to spring a surprise upon Elisha, but becomingly pointed out to him the exigency of the situation. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make us a place there where we may dwell. Second Kings 6, 2 Had their desire for more spacious quarters proceeded from carnal ambition, they had aspired to something more imposing than a wooden building. Nor is it at all likely that in such a case, they had volunteered to do the work themselves. Rather, had they suggested going around with collecting cards, soliciting gifts from the people, so that they might have the money to hire others to erect a more commodious seminary for them. Matthew Henry wrote, They were humble men who did not affect that which was gay or great. They did not speak of sending for cedars and marble stones and curious artificers, but only of getting every man a beam to run up a plain hut or cottage with. It becomes the sons of the prophets who profess to look for the great in the other world to be content with mean things in this. End of quote. Alas, that Protestants have so often aped the Romanists in making a show before the world. And he answered, Go ye, verse 2, which he surely had not done if they had become discontented with their humble quarters and were lusting after something more agreeable to the flesh. That reply of Elisha's was something more than a bare assent to their proposal or permission for them to execute the same. It was also a real testing of their hearts. Those who are accustomed 
to judge harshly of others, might infer that these young men had grown tired of the strict discipline which Elisha must have enforced, and had found irksome the pious and devotional type of life he required from them, and that this idea of making for the Jordan was but a cover for their determination to get away from the man of God. In such a case, they had promptly availed themselves of his grant, bidden him farewell, and promptly taken their departure. But we may learn something more from this answer, Go ye! It gives us a sidelight on the prophet's own character, manifesting as it does his humility. He at once perceived the reasonableness of their request and concurred with them therein, whereas a proud and haughty man had quickly resented any suggestion coming from those under his charge or care. Thus, an important practical lesson is here inculcated. Superiors ought not to deem themselves above receiving and weighing ideas from their inferiors, and when discerning the wisdom of the same and recognizing they could be carried out to advantage, should not hesitate to adopt them. It is the mark of a little mind and not of a great one, which considers it has a monopoly of intelligence and is independent of help from others. Many a man has paid dearly for disdaining the counsel of his wife or employees. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. Verse 3 Very blessed is this, revealing as it does the happy relations which existed between them, and of the veneration and love these students had for their master. Such meekness and graciousness on the part of superiors, as we have alluded to, is not unappreciated by their inferiors. Right nobly did they respond to the test contained in Elisha's Go Ye, by begging him to accompany them on their expedition. And how such a request on their part refutes the evil inference which some might draw from their original proposal, jumping to the conclusion that they were tired of Elisha's company and merely devised this plan as a pretext to get away from him. A warning to us not to surmise evil of our fellows, giving point to Christ's admonition, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. John 7.24 Third, its location, the Jordan. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And a good thing it was that he did so, as the sequel shows. And when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. Verse 4. Very commendable was this. But how unlike the pampered and spoiled young people of our generation who have been encouraged 
to expect that someone else will do everything for them, that they should be waited on hand and foot by their seniors. These young men were willing and ready to put their own shoulder to the work. They did not seek to shelter behind a false conception of their sacred calling and indulge a foolish pride or papish-like exaltation of their office by concluding that such a thing was beneath their dignity, considering themselves far too superior to engage in manual labor. No, instead of hiring others to do it, they performed the task themselves. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried and said, Alas, Master, for it was borrowed. Verse 5 An accident now happened. In one sense, it is perfectly true that there are no accidents in the world that is presided over by the living God. But in another sense, it is equally true that accidents do occur in the human realm. This calls for a defining of our term. What is an accident? It is when some effect is produced or some consequence issues from an action undesigned by its performer. From the divine side of things, nothing occurs in this world but what God has ordained but from the human side, many things result from our actions which were not intended by us. It was no design of this man that he should lose the head of his axe. That he did so was accidental on his part. Fourth, its purpose. To recover a borrowed article. And he cried and said, Alas, Master, for it was borrowed. How strange that such a thing should happen while in the performance of duty. Yet the Lord had a wise and good reason for permitting the same, and mercifully prevented the death of another. Deuteronomy 19.5 It is to be duly noted that he did not regard Elijah as being too great a man to be troubled about such a trifling matter, but as an honest person deeply concerned over the loss and assured of his master's sympathy, he at once informed him. His alas seems to denote that he regarded his loss as final and had no expectation it would be retrieved by a miracle. The lesson for us is plain, even though, to our shame, we have no faith of his showing himself strong on our behalf, it is ever our duty and privilege to spread before our Master everything that troubles us. Not one concern of ours is small if we belong to him to teach us this the Lord of all once made the iron to swim. John Newton Fifth, its means. And the man of God said, Observe the change from verse 1, not simply Elisha here, because he was about to act officially and work a miracle. 
Where fell it? This was designed to awaken hope in him, and he showed him the place. And he cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Verse 6 There was no proportion between the means and the end to demonstrate the power was of God. The Hebrew word for stick is a generic one. It is rendered tree 162 times, being the same word as in Deuteronomy 21.23, quoted in Galatians 3.13. It is also translated wood 103 times, as in Genesis 6.14, the Shechem wood used in connection with the frame and furniture of the tabernacle, and in verse 4 of our passage. Evidently, it was a small tree or sapling Elisha cut down, and these references make clear its typical import. Sixth, its meaning. The incident which has been before us may, we consider be justly regarded as broadly illustrating what is portrayed by the law and the gospel. It serves to give us a typical picture of the sinner's ruin and redemption. As the result of being dissatisfied with the position God originally assigned us, subjecting to His authority, we in Adam appropriated what was not ours, and in consequence suffered a fearful fall. The inanimate iron falling into the Jordan, the place of judgment, is an apt figure of the elect in their natural state, dead in trespasses and sins, incapable of doing aught for their deliverance. The way and means which God took for our recovery was for Christ to come right down to where we were and to be cut off. Daniel 9.26 Yea, cut off out of the land of the living. Isaiah 53.8 Enduring judgment on our behalf, thereby recovering us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 This incident may also be taken as informing the believer how lost blessings may be restored to him. Are there not among our hearers some who no longer enjoy the liberty they once had in prayer or the satisfaction they formerly experienced in reading the scriptures? Are there not some who have lost their peace and assurance and are deeply concerned of being so deprived? If so, The devil will say the loss is irrecoverable and you must go mourning the rest of your days. But that is one of his many lies. This passage reveals how your situation may be retrieved. 1. Acquaint your master with your grief. Verse 5. Unbosom yourself freely and frankly unto him. 2. Let his, where fell it, verse 6, search you. Examine yourself 
review the past, ascertain the place or point in your life where the blessing ceased, discover the personal cause of your spiritual loss, judge yourself for the failure and confess it, acknowledging the blame to be entirely yours. 3. Avail yourself and make use of the means for recovery. Cast in the stick or tree, verse 6, that is, plead the merits of Christ's cross, 1 Peter 2.24. 4. Stretch forth the hand of faith, verse 7, that is, count upon your Master's infinite goodness and grace. Expect His effectual intervention, and the lost blessing shall be restored to you. This incident may also be viewed as making known to us how we may grow in grace. One, there must be the desire and prayer for spiritual expansion. Second Kings 6, 1, a longing to enter into and possess the large place. Psalm 118, 5, God has provided for us. Two, the recognition that to enter therein involves effort from us. Verse 2. Labor on our part. 3. Seek the oversight of a servant of God in this. Verse 3. If he be available. 4. Observe very carefully the particular place to which we must betake ourselves if such spiritual enlargement is to be ours. It is the Jordan, and that speaks of death. We can only enter into an enriched spiritual experience by dying more and more unto the flesh, that is, by denying self and mortifying our lusts. Romans 8.13, Colossians 3.5 5. Five, expect to encounter difficulties. Verse 5. Use the appointed means, verse 6, for overcoming the obstacle of the flesh, Galatians 6.14. 7. Stretch forth the hand of faith, verse 7, and appropriate what God has given us in Christ. 7. Its Lessons 1. See the value of requesting our Master's presence even when about to engage in manual labor. 2. Be conscientious about borrowed articles, books for example. We should be more careful about things loaned us than those which are our own. 3. Despise not those engaged in manual labor. Elisha did not. For let not the servant of God disdain what may seem trifling opportunities to do good. 5. Remember your father cares for his people in their minutest concerns. 6. Is anything too hard for him who made the iron to swim? 7. What encouragement is here for us to heed?
Philippians 4, 6 Chapter 21 13th Miracle In the incident which is to be before us, we behold Elisha discharging a different line of duty. No longer do we see him engaged in ministering to the young prophets, but instead we find him faithfully rendering valuable assistance to his sovereign. Once more the lust of blood or booty moved to the king of Syria to war against Israel. Following the advice of his military counselors, he decided to encamp in a certain place through which the king of Israel was wont to pass, expecting to catch him and his retainers. God acquainted Elisha with his master's peril, and accordingly the prophet went and warned him thereof, and heeding the same, the king was preserved from the snare set for him. It is required of us that as we have opportunity to do good unto all men. Galatians 6.10 True, a Christian is not endowed with the extraordinary gifts of an Elisha. Nevertheless, he has a responsibility toward his king or ruler. Not only is he divinely commanded to honor the king, 1 Peter 2.17, but I exhort therefore that First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, be made for all men, for kings and all that are in authority. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 Coming now to our miracle. First, his connection. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, in such and such a place shall be my camp. Second Kings 6, 8 Clearly, the opening then bids us pay attention to the connection. From a literary viewpoint, we regard our present incident as the sequel to what is mentioned in chapter 5 of Second Kings, taking chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, as a parenthesis, thereby emphasizing the base ingratitude of the Syrian monarch for the miraculous healing of his commander-in-chief in the land of Israel. There he had written a personal letter to Israel's king, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, to recover Naaman from his leprosy. But here he has evil designs upon him, that he should invade the land of Samaria so soon after such a signal favor had been rendered to him, aggravated his offense and made the more manifest his wicked character. It is wrong for us to return evil for evil, for vengeance belongeth alone unto the Lord. But to return evil for good is a sin of double-dyed enormity, Yet how often have we treated God thus? But there is another way in which this opening then may be regarded, namely by linking it unto the typical significance of what is recorded in verses 1 to 7. 
we suggested a threefold application of that miracle. First, as supplying a picture of the sinner's redemption. Viewing it thus, what is the next thing we should expect to meet with? Why, the rage of the enemy. And this is adumbrated by the attack of the king of Syria. Second, that miracle may also be regarded as showing the Christian how a lost blessing is to be retrieved. And when the believer has peace, joy, assurance restored to him, what is sure to follow? This. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel. Nothing so maddens Satan as the sight of a happy saint. Blessed is it to see in what follows how his evil designs were thwarted. Third, that miracle can also be viewed as portraying how the Christian may grow in grace by mortifying his members which are upon the earth. And if he does and enters into an enlarged spiritual experience, then he may expect to be an object of the enemy's renewed assaults, yet he shall not be overcome by him. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel. Yes, my hearer, there were wars in those days. Human nature has been the same in each generation and in all countries. So far from war being a new thing, the history of nations, both ancient and modern, civilized and uncivilized, is little more than a record of animosities, intrigues, and fightings. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Romans 3.15 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.